Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Hi, everybody. Hope you are doing well today. Uh, welcome to Sports History 101. I, as always, am your host, Ray Delgado. And today, we'll be going through the life and times of a Mr. Sam Snead, a legendary golfer and huge part of golf's history in the United States. So we'll just jump right into it. Samuel Jackson Sneed was born on May 27, 1912 in Ashwood, Virginia, as the youngest of six boys. I imagine that was probably a nightmare for his mother. As a young boy, he watched his older brother hitting golf balls on their family cow and chicken farm, and the interest started from there. Soon after he was watching his brother, he wanted to emulate his brother. So being poor and not having enough money to just go out and buy what you like, he started to make his own set of golf clubs using swamp maple limbs. Swamp maple is a type of tree, so tree limbs, and using balls that he found while caddying at the local Homestead Hotel Golf Course in Hot Springs, Virginia, so close by. He was a country boy through and through from when he was born to when he died. And being a country boy, as he was known for his entire career, he liked to play golf barefoot as a kid, uh, which would uh, appear once again as he grew up. As he did grow up, he became a very lean five foot 11 with long limbs and he was very athletic. He grew up wanting to be a football star, and naturally, as most young kids do, they have a bunch of brothers, they probably played football. And he was pretty good, but after suffering a back injury, uh, that really ended that adventure for him. So once that door closed, the other one opened, and he focused solely on golf. He caddied at the Homestead Old Course, for a few years before accepting a position as the assistant professional there in 1929 at 17 years old. So for those who are unfamiliar with golf, at every golf course, there is a head professional, which is a guy who basically runs the operations more so. Um, And then there's an assistant professional and the head, head professional and the assistant professional They both play golf. They both have to be very good at golf. Oftentimes, they'll give lessons and do different things like that. So at 17, got to be pretty good at golf to be an assistant professional. Five years after that, after playing mass amounts of golf, Slam and Sammy turned professional and became the assistant professional at the Cascades course, which was the other golf course at the Homestead Resort. So Slam and Sammy... um, became his nickname as he went on in his career because he could hit the snot out of the ball. He was easily like the longest driver of anyone at that time. And he did it with just such a smooth and natural swing, but he could hit the ball so far that they called him Slam and Sam or Slam and Sammy. Right after he turned professional, In 1935, he played in two large professional tournaments. So the week right before Christmas, he played in the Miami Biltmore Open and finished tied for 15th alongside two others 
which meant they got to split the $325 prize for that, that spot. Also, in September, he played in his home club's tournament, the Cascades Open. So he was uh, pretty, uh, pretty familiar with that course and looked like he was going to get his first professional victory there as he had a 54-hole lead but played just an awful, terrible uh, final round and shot 80 but still managed to finish tied for third. So professional tournaments... Now they're all four rounds of golf. Back then, it varied a little bit, but at least the Cascades open, just to kind of give you a benchmark here. Um, a round of golf is 18 holes, and you play, like I said, now they always play four rounds before they played, you know, two, three, four rounds, something like that. Um, but you play 72 holes is four rounds, so that's what they usually do. And anything in between that. So 36 holes is two rounds, 54 holes is three rounds and 72 is four rounds. So just as a, as a benchmark for you, but so through those two tournaments, he finished uh, tied 15th and then tied for third. And then at the end of the season, he left the homestead, which was his golf course um, to become the assistant pro to Fred Martin at the Greenbrier in white sulfur Springs, West Virginia. So the Greenbrier was a much more well-known course, uh, better course, you know, more competitive and things like that, and is still a pretty pretty prominent, pretty important course for the PGA Tour. But we'll get that get to that a little later. The next year, 1936, was when he actually joined the PGA Tour, and he took the golf world by storm, not right out of the gate but very shortly after. In January of 1936, he, not so much finally, since it was only his, his third shot at a, at a big tournament, locked down his first professional victory. He shot 70 and 61. Par was 72. To cruise to a 16-shot victory over Clem Weichman in the West Virginia Closed Open played on the old white course at the Greenbrier. So played at his home course, which probably played a, a little bit into uh, the finish there. But yeah, he <laughs> opened up a 16-stroke victory, which is just absolutely huge. And was the, I believe at the time, the largest margin of victory in a PGA Tour event ever. Also in that season, he picked up three more top tens. He finished tied for ninth at the Centennial Open, excuse me, and tied for seventh at the Shawnee Open. And then in September, he finished tied for sixth at the Hershey Open, shooting 291, which is one under par for 72 holes. So not too shabby. He's uh, he's definitely getting his getting his shots in there. That year, he did not play in the PGA Championship, which was one of the four majors which I will explain as we move along here. Uh, he didn't play in the PGA Championship because he showed up to the wrong qualifier. So in order to play in the PGA Championship, you had to play qualifying events. And, you know, the guys who were already established on the PGA Tour, they had played enough qualifying events to get in. But he was still new. He's still a rookie and hadn't played those, you know, enough of those or at least one of those. So he showed up to the wrong one. 
uh, because there are multiple across the, the country. And because he showed up with the wrong one, he couldn't play in it, and that made him ineligible for the PGA Championship in 1936. Unfortunate, but, you know, what are you going to do? 1937 was Snead's breakout year. In January, he played in the Oakland Open and finished with a final round 67 to win the tournament and win the $1,200 first prize, which is big money back then. Big money now for me, at least. Then in February, he played the Bing Crosby program. Bing Crosby was a huge, very famous golfer. Um, And this was actually the very first Bing Crosby program, Pro-Am. That means professional-amateur. And it's now called the AT&T Pro-Am. And that was actually a big deal when they changed the name to that because it was known as the Clam Bake. It was a huge tournament. You know, everyone wanted to play in it. It was a big deal because Bing Crosby was a big deal. They played it for a couple decades at least as the Bing Crosby program and then changed it to the AT&T program. And everyone was uh, much sadder for it, for sure. But anyway, Sneed won that tournament, which gave him another $500 in the bank. And then in May, the PGA Championship rolled around. So this time, he had enough qualifying tournaments in the bag already that he didn't have to worry about going to uh, the wrong qualifier again. Um, And back then, the PGA Championship was a match play tournament. So in general, now, golf, way back when it first started, everything was match play, which means that if you're playing against somebody – each individual hole is a quote-unquote match. So that basically means that your total strokes at the end don't matter so much as your head-to-head on each hole. So if myself and another man were playing, or another woman, were playing the first hole, and I got a five and they got a four, they would win that hole. So we don't really count the strokes that I got a five, they got a four. It's just they're one up. So that's, in essence, what match play is. Whereas stroke play, you just add all the strokes up at the end, and whoever has the least amount of strokes wins. So back to the point. PGA Championship was a match play tournament. Now, and for a long time, it's been a stroke play tournament. But back then, it was match play. Sneed won his first two matches, but was then ousted in the quarterfinals 3-2, and two, which means his opponent, Jug McSpaden, McSpadden, which is a great name, was up three was up three with two holes to play so that means that they ended the match on the 16th green because sneed there's no way he could win three more holes if there's only two holes left that's kind of a crude way to explain match play but hopefully it made a little bit of sense so that was may then in june he played in the u.s open and opened as an eight to one favorite but that didn't work out for him as he finished second to Ralph Goldal. Goldal would end up being a uh, pretty good rival to him back then, and actually someone that Sneed uh, went back and forth with quite a bit. In the final round, Sneed teed off early and posted a 283 for the tournament. And that kind of put him at a disadvantage because if you tee off early on the last day, which now the leaders are the guys that are leading after 54 holes. They tee off latest so that no one, you know, they, so they know where everybody is 
um, right about when they are going to finish because they always finish last. Back then, Sneed finished, he teed off in the in the morning and posted his round, which means Goldal, I really hope I'm saying that name right, um, knew what the number was he had to beat Sneed by. So he shot 69 on the final day and ended up beating Sam Sneed by two. And that would become that U.S. Open, that tournament would end up being really just uh, a pain in the side of Sam Snead's career for for most of it, basically all of it. But more to come on that. So after the U.S. Open, he won the St. Paul Open, which is another $1,200. The Nassau Open in December, he went down to the Bahamas and shot 66 and then 370s after that to win $750 and came from behind to win, as was his signature move. Then on Christmas Day, he played in the Miami Open and shot 66 in both the last two rounds to finish 13 under par, which was a tournament record, and win the event by five strokes and get even more money. As you can see, there's a there's a theme here with the money. Uh, we'll add it up later. Other finishes for that season, he tied for third in the Metropolitan Open. He won the West Virginia Open by 12 strokes, one of like 12 times that he would win that tournament in his career. It wasn't a uh, – actually, it was a PGA. Eh, maybe I – don't, I don't think it was. Never mind. Anyway, then he also finished fourth in the Miami Biltmore Open. So for his basically first full year on tour, he earned $10,243.73. So think about that. Basically 10 grand. I'm like, wow, that's basically nothing. But we did a little calculation here, counting for inflation and whatnot. So $10,243.73 in 1937 equates to right about $185,000 in 2020. So huge payday for him. I mean, that, that could take you from the poorhouse to uh, the penthouse pretty quickly. So along with really rolling in the money in his, in his first full year, he also made the Ryder Cup team for the first time. And the Ryder Cup is it's a tournament played between the United States and at that time, Great Britain, and you put together two teams. So one team from US, the U.S., one team from Great Britain. They they go head to head. Might do actually do an episode on that. That would uh, that'd be pretty good because it, there's a lot goes into it. There's four ball and foursomes and singles and stuff. And I'm not going to explain that now. But Steed played well in the one match that he played in. He played singles and beat his opponent five and four. So he was five up with four holes to play. So they didn't even make it to the uh, 15th green or 15th tee, I should say. And then also that victory helped the United States to a victory beating Great Britain eight to four. So Ryder Cup's a big deal. It was back then, still is now. In 1938, Sam Snead was nothing short of dominant. He started his year with a, another victory, defending his 1937 title at the Bing Crosby Pro-Am, and then won the Greater Greensboro Open in March by five strokes, and then in May won the Inverness Invitational 
along with Vic Gezi, and they played best ball. So he shot a best ball 61 on the final day. Um, basically, that means each player tees off, and whoever shot is better, they both hit from that spot and blah, blah, blah. I can explain best ball. Well, if I do a Ryder Cup one, best ball's in there. So then he went to this one. I was a little shaky on finding the uh, the records here on what it was actually called. Because from what I could gather, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. But it was either called the Palm Beach Round Robin, which wouldn't make any sense, or the Goodall Invitational. I saw it both both ways. But he played there in June, and that tournament was, is crazy. I didn't even know they did this, but it was seven rounds. So he shot 487, which, I mean, I don't really have any benchmark on, on that because I've never seen anything more than a four-round tournament. But he shot 72, 69, 71, and then for his final four rounds, he went 68, 69, 69, 69. So... So you don't really need a benchmark for that. That's pretty dang good to be able to, in seven rounds, shoot 69 four times and 68 once. For the non-golf fans, 72 is par, usually. Sometimes it's 71 or 70, depending on the course. But to be able to shoot a sub-70 round, especially back then, it's uh, golf's different now. Guys are shooting you know, 65 with relative ease, but the equipment's way different and everything is is quite a, a world of difference. So back then they're playing with wood clubs uh, with screws in the face, which basically helped from what I could gather with the stability of the, the club. But so you had to hit the club right in the center of that club face because if you hit one of those screws, the ball went off in a weird direction. So these guys had to be a lot more talented. So to be able to shoot in the 60s, five times in seven rounds. That's pretty impressive. That was a little bit of a uh, detour there. So after the Palm Beach round robin slash Goodall Invitational, he finished second in the PGA Championship. So that was the match play event. So you have to go through five rounds. So he made it all the way to the finals and then lost, unfortunately. Then he won the Chicago Open, finished tied for the lead at the Canadian Open, and then after an 18-hole playoff, because you can't finish tied for first in a golf tournament, after an 18-hole playoff, he and Harry Cooper was still tied, and then they played another nine holes, and Snead won by five strokes. So it just needed, you know, what is that? I can't do that math right now, but whatever. 90, 99 holes? That sounds right. Whatever. Then... After playing what I could gather to be 99 holes, he played in the Westchester 108-hole Open, which, again, I think that's seven rounds. That's six rounds, I think. Yeah, yeah, six rounds. And he was tied for fifth through four rounds from that and then pulled ahead in the final two rounds and won five grand, which, dang, man, that's a lot of money. And then... After that, I know I'm just throwing a lot of tournament names and wins and metrics and things, but, I mean, this is impressive stuff. He then closed out the season with a victory at the White Sulphur Open, which he won by two strokes, again, uh, at the Greenbrier at the Old White course. So, again, at his home course, he won 
tournaments back-to-back. So in total, he won eight tournaments that year and finished second in six others, including the PGA Championship, which was a major. Again, I'll explain that later. And finished on top of the money list. So I don't know exactly when they started tracking the money list, but basically the PGA Tour um, keeps track of how much money each player has won and ranks them. So hence you know, the money list. So he finished first with $19,534.19 in 1938, which equates to about $360,000. So in two years, he made almost half a million dollars, which, I mean, that's definitely nothing to scoff at. So, yeah. I mean, what else is there to really say about his first two years on the tour? He won 14 tournaments and in 1938 money, just shy of 30 grand. And he was far from done. And we'll keep running through this tally when we come back. Following up an eight-win season is difficult for anybody. And while Slam and Sam wouldn't quite get there again for a while, he continued to play great golf. In 1939, he won three tournaments, did the same in 1940. And then in 1941, he won six tournaments, including both. He won the Bing Crosby program and the Canadian Open for the third time each. And then in 1942, he won his first major of his career. So majors are basically the biggest tournaments on the PGA Tour in any given season. So there's four majors. So there's the U.S. Open, there's the British Open, the Masters, and the PGA Championship. So we already talked about the PGA Championship, a little bit about that. Masters, the British Open, and the U.S. Open were all stroke play events. And they, well, I guess they're stroke play events now. I can't say from the start what they were. Basically, those are the ones with the hardest, you know, competition. Everyone wants to play in those. And those mean the most when you win. Um, it's always a huge honor. And that's basically the, the biggest tally of your career is how many majors you could win. Or how many majors you did win or didn't win is more like. One funny, uh, interesting anecdote for the uh, the 1942 Masters. So we're in the 42 uh, for Sam Snead's career. He uh, he did not win the Masters, and he had such a natural swing and natural timing with it. Um, timing is a huge part of golf with your golf swing, and his timing was off in at the Masters. So I forget what I don't believe I ever saw what round it was actually in, but. Through the first nine holes, his rhythm was off, and he just couldn't figure it out again. So he went back to his roots, back to uh, being a kid playing some golf, and took off his socks and shoes and played the back nine holes with on Augusta National, which is one of the most famous golf courses in the world, barefoot. So I can only imagine seeing that. I don't believe there's any pictures of that, not that I saw. If anyone wants to send send me one, that'd be great. If they could find it, um, but it was uh, it was great. 
1942, again, he didn't win the Masters, but he did win the first major of his career. So he won the PGA Championship. So it's a 32-player field, single elimination match play. So you play one match, you lose, you're out. Sam Snead beat Sam Bird, Willie Goggin, Ed Dudley, Jimmy Demerit, before besting Jim Terniza, Terniza, not sure, uh, in the final round by holing out a 60-foot chip for birdie on the 17th hole, which gave him a 2-1 victory. So that's a pretty great way to finish and uh, win your first major. And then the day after his win, after winning the PGA Championship, huge highlight of your career, he reported the basic training for the Navy. So you might notice 1942 is uh, during the time when World War II was happening. So Sneed had actually enlisted in the Navy months before winning the PGA Championship, but postponed his induction until after. So literally the day after, he was uh, off reporting for basic training. So because he was in the Navy, he missed the entire 43 season and most of the 44 season while serving in the Navy. But upon his return, first tournament back, First tournament since being discharged from the Navy, he won the Portland Open. And then he won the Richmond Open. And then to top it off, he was named the head pro at the Greenbrier. So his home course, where he'd been the assistant pro for a while, he was now named the head pro. So by this time, it's pretty easily you know, said, Sam Snead was known across the country. Like I said, he was as fluid as could be and could hit the ball a mile. Also, was just ridiculously athletic and brimming with the natural talent that, I mean, if you're going to play golf at that level, you need to have a lot of natural talent. And believe you me, he had he had it in spades. He played in a straw hat, which played into his quote-unquote man-from-the-hills narrative that headlined basically all stories about him early on. So anytime you'd see anything about Sam Snead in the newspapers, it was all about him being basically a man from the backwoods of West Virginia. For those that might not know, this wasn't a time where the competition was weak and Snead was the only one who could really play. I mean, as you look back in time in different sports, you know, athletes really stand out, transcend the sport, but that's because, you know, there was not really any competition for them. But that was not the case. He was up against some of the greatest golfers to ever play the game, like legitimately, in Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan, among many other talented guys like Gene Sarazen, who always showed up to play. And actually, Sarazen would end up being one of Snead's great friends as they went along. So, can't throw that argument out there. 1945 was his first full season since returning from the war. And he didn't skip a beat. He won six more tournaments. And then 16 other top 10 finishes. So, it's pretty safe to say, if Sam Snead was going out to play golf, he was finishing at least in the top 10 every single time. Then in 1946, guess what? Won another six more tournaments. And with the Open Championship 
highlighting the year for him. The Open Championship had not been, well, it's also the British Open, which I explained it earlier, um, had not been played in six years because of the war. So naturally, the British Open, Britain was close to Germany, and Britain was being bombed during the war, so they're not going to play a stupid golf tournament while there's war happening. So the tournament came back for the first time in six years in 1946 at... St. Andrew's Old Course, which is also known as the home of golf. So that is reportedly, you know, accepted by everybody where golf started. Golf was first played and first basically, I guess, thought up, engineered at the St. Andrew's Old Course. So always an honor to play there. And not only to play there, but also to win, which Sam Snead did by four strokes. Besting Bobby Locke and Johnny Bulla, shooting 71, 70, 74, and 75. So that just tells you how difficult that course is to shoot. Oh, man, I, I don't know what the par is for the for St. Andrews. But I'm assuming it's either 71 or 72. So to shoot two or three over par the last two days and win, that's pretty big. By 1949... Sneed was really, he was on autopilot for the most part, winning multiple times a year, basically every year. That year he won another seven times and added two more majors to the docket. Downing five more players in match play to win his second PGA Championship. Then shot 67 on the final day to win the Masters at Augusta National by three strokes. And then almost got a third major of the year, which is completely unheard of. To win one is great, win two is fantastic, to win three is otherworldly. But for the third time in his career, he finished second in the U.S. Open. So a huge bummer. That was one that he would never get, the U.S. Open. He finished second one more time, and that was that was really like the only black spot in his career. And it could even be said that because he was such an amazing golfer and finished second four times. So 49 was a special year for many reasons, but a huge one was the career wins list. So obviously you're always comparing with other players, other people, and the PGA had, you know, a wins tally. And the leader at the time was Walter Hagen, who had 45 career wins. Well, with his seven-win season in 1949, Sneed tied and then bested Hagen's mark, giving him right about, if my math is correct, an even 50 by the end of the 49 season. So Walter Hagen for his career had 45. Sam Sneed already had 50. Then in 1950, just to pour more icing on the cake, he won 11 times. 11 times. Like, what? That's completely unheard of. No one could ever do that nowadays. For his total career, Sam Snead would pick up 22 more, quote, official PGA wins, including the 1951 PGA Championship, and then the 52 and the 54 Masters, and then won his final PGA Tour tournament in 1965, 
won the Greensboro Open for a record eighth time and in doing so became the oldest player ever to win a PGA Tour event at age 52 and 10 months. And I'm almost certain that that still stands. However, just because his PGA Tour is over, he did not stop playing golf and won the West Virginia Open basically every year until 1973. So that was when he was, let's see, 65, he was 52. So he was 60 years old and still beating everybody in West Virginia. And at alongside those, he also won a number of senior events in multiple countries. So, you know, they have a, an age limit or not. Well, yeah, age floor. You have to be a, at least 50 years old to compete in senior events around the world. Like the PGA Tour has a PGA Tour of Champions, which is basically just the senior tour. Uh, but he won multiple times in those events as well. To this day, he leads the all-time wins list in PGA history. But we have quite a bit more to say about that after we take our second break. Sam Snead was far and away the all-time wins leader in PGA history when he won his last Greensboro Open in 1965. When the dust settled and all was counted up, he had a breathtaking 94 PGA victories to his name. Fast forward a couple decades, and the PGA Tour decided to put together a set of parameters for tournaments to qualify as a PGA Tour events and thus wins. A couple of the rules centered around the size of the purse, so how much money was given, and the strength of the field in terms of talent, ranking, whatever you want to say. When everything was agreed upon for what constituted a PGA Tour event, that didn't just apply to events going forward. It also included the events that were put on under the PGA Tour moniker in the past, which posed an issue. Thus, a number of players were stripped of their sanctioned wins. They were sanctioned at the time by the PGA Tour, including Sam Snead, who had 13 of his 94 wins taken away from him, moving his total down to 81. I don't know about you, but that seems entirely unfair for those players who played before those rules were instituted. I mean, I guarantee players played in certain events because they were PGA Tour events at the time, and going back and taking that away from them I think that's wrong. I think you have to accept those are the rules of the time, those are the parameters, and move on. I don't know if this still happens, but players who won a tournament back then used to be called the medalist. Well, I know they still don't call that them the medalist. They just call them winner. But you'll see, hear that in college golf and also high school golf, the medalist means you won the tournament. And fittingly, after they won the tournament back then, they would get a medallion and get a medal. According to Jack Sneed, one of Sam's sons, after you won a sanctioned event, like I said, put on by the PGA Tour, six or seven weeks later, you would get an 18 karat gold medallion in the mail. 
that had the PGA logo on one side, and the other had the tournament, your name, and your score. There's a quote. It's just really funny because it's actually from the PGA's website. It says, it's a it's from Jack Snead. It says it's a token from the PGA that you've won their sanctioned event. I know I keep emphasizing that, but I don't understand if you if you have 94 of those medallions like Jack Snead now does. Sam Snead won 94. How can you take those away? How can you take some of those away and say nope? That one that you have a sanctioned medallion for that we gave to you doesn't count. Doesn't make any sense to me. And as you can see, I think that is a huge injustice and should be rectified because you just, you can't do that. That's not cool. Competition is competition and it changes from decade to decade and you have to accept that. On top of that, taking away the 13 wins, one of those was his open championship at St. Andrews. So they took away his British open, one of the majors. And that was like, what, what are you doing? And eventually after a lot of embarrassment and heat, they gave that one back in 2000, which like, come on guys, that's one of, that's one of the majors. And you took that away. So he had 81 wins for a while officially and then got 82 when they gave him his open championship back completely ridiculous so even though sam sneed was robbed of 12 pga victories he was still great i mean there's no doubt about it he won a total of 165 professional events he was a pga player of the year and won the varden trophy for the lowest stroke average both in 1949 played on the Ryder cup team seven times and was a captain three times he also then played eight times in the world cup he was the fourth recipient of pga tours lifetime achievement award in 1998 no small feat by any stretch then was inducted into the pga hall of fame the world golf hall of fame virginia and west virginia sports halls of fame and i think a couple others and to just add more, he also wrote two best-selling books. And I mean, I think probably most importantly, he was also a really good person. Everyone liked Sam Snead. Slam and Sammy unfortunately passed away on May 23rd, 2002, just four days before his 90th birthday. So he had a very long life. He was very close to his sons, especially Jack, who caddied for him and was both his agent and business manager for roughly the last 25 years of his life. So they were very close. And it was really all Sam had as his wife had passed away in 1990 and he remained unmarried until his death playing golf and seeing, seeing the rest of his family. Snee's legacy is a huge one, not just for what he accomplished on the course, but off it as well. So he was the first to take home an Augusta National Green Jacket for winning the Masters in 1949. So that's customary now. If you win the Masters, you get a green jacket. He was the very first one to, to, that that happened. He was friends with King Edward VIII of England. He's also friends with Dwight Eisenhower before he became president. The just awesome dude, he played trumpet with Louis Armstrong 
and fought boxing exhibitions with Joe Lewis. These are just some of the most famous people there have been. And he still has a series of restaurants called Sam Sneed's Tavern that Jack Sneed manages and regularly changes out the mass amounts of memorabilia that recount his father's success. Slam and Sammy was as smooth as they come on the golf course. He never tinkered with his swing and lived a healthy lifestyle that gave him fantastic longevity and allowed others to see his straw hats bobbing down the fairway for decades. He also had a relentless winning spirit and was quoted saying, I don't give a damn what tournament it is. If you're going to play it, you want to win it. Something I can absolutely respect. And that is it for Mr. Sam Sneed. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, doing some research on, on Sam Sneed. <sighs> Until next time, everyone, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintsportsnetwork.home.blog.